Before we get started, I want to announce that if you applied during the 2020 application cycle for fellowship, there's a survey out now through Yale investigating the impact of the virtual format on you with a $50 raffle for just for enrolling in the survey. Find more information on how to enroll in the episode description. Now, back to the episode. Hello, welcome to My Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAST board review podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these podcasts are meant for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose anything on anyone's eyes. Each week we take a high topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week? Posterior capsular opacification and ways to deal with it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the main way to deal with it, yag, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> so we know as a resident, this is actually a pretty easy topic. I mean... You do cataract surgery, and a third of the time, the posterior capsule hazes up. Then you do a YAG. But that, of course, is not what the test is going to ask you to report. They're going to ask you more pathophysiology things. And we actually have not had too many episodes on cataract pathophysiology, which I guess we should do. But we'll start... Yeah, we should do, like, cataract episodes. <laughs> well, probably the basic science of cataract stuff is easy to do. The... Yeah. Which lens is best? That's where you get. Oh, we into don't want to get weeds. into that. Yeah, we don't. <laughs> yeah. For which we refer you to many of the industry-sponsored podcasts. Yeah, that yeah, that was maybe. I don't know if they're even. Yeah, just. You, we have probably some of the least opinionated opinions on cataract surgery. I'm pretty sure because nobody's paid us. Yeah, no one has. Like, yeah, we, we just are so disinterested. <laughs> Yeah, like honestly, I'm just gonna get like some random monofocal lens. Like, if there's a 20% discount when I need cataract surgery, I'll probably just go for that lens. You know, that's like where I'm at. Anyway, before we uh, inflame too many uh, elder cataract surgeons, let's talk about this membrane thing. <laughs> the PCO, posterior capsular pacification, is when the residual epithelial cells in a lens bag that had a cataract surgery done, proliferate and migrate. Now remember, when you do cataract surgery, it's very easy to, you know, inadvertently leave lens epithelial cells in the bag. In fact, most of the time, almost all the time, you probably do, you know, when you do cataract surgery, you can't see all the way into the capsular fornix, you know, the part that's under the iris. Um, And even if you could, you know, often as we'll talk about, it's not very significant to get every little last epithelial cell out of the bag. But anyways, the ones that stick around uh, eventually will migrate and proliferate and then differentiate. And then that can that can lead to posterior capsular pacification, which can look like a sheen on the posterior capsule or sometimes can look like these little pearls that look on the posterior capsule. What kind of cell do LECs turn or lens epithelial cells turn into when they look kind of pearl-like, Andrew? <laughs> So a lot of you have probably seen this weird, fluffy, bubbly almost appearance, like bubble wrap yeah, around bubble. yeah, around an IOL. Those are lens epithelial cells that have actually kind of morphed and swollen into a different kind. I mean, they're still LECs, but the BCSC wants you to call them swollen bladder cells or Weddell, W-E-D-L. Is it not Weddell? Nah. Uh, apologies, Dr. Weddle. Really, though, this configuration as a clinical sign is really just called Elschnig's pearls. Yeah, you know, I, and I've heard it, Elschnig's pearls refer to any, like, kind of pearl-like, like, cluster pearl-like looking thing 
in or around the bag. The BCC seems to differentiate them as in the capsular opening, so where the capsular rexus was in, in a cataract surgery. But, you know, you can imagine if they're within the capsular opening, they're more likely to be visually significant. So, you know, maybe that's mm. why you want to differentiate L-shaped pearls in that way. But in any case, when they look like that, then they are, as you say, the weedle and bladder cells, which are a testable, is a testable point. Andrew, I um, was doing a case the other day where basically someone's entire lens bag complex dropped, like they were pseudofaking and their whole lens bag complex dropped. And, you know, after we did a vitrectomy to go on the rescue mission to bring this thing back up into the anterior chamber, you know, we noticed that the lens was completely surrounded by the bag, but it looked like there was a ring of white stuff around the lens. What the heck was that? Sounds like that was the other eponym people know, which is called Somering's ring. That's where the anterior capsule opacifies a bit too. It's not really visually significant because the anterior capsule, the part of the anterior capsule that would have blocked the visual axis is gone. You've rexist it out. Right, right. Yeah, you know, to, to remind folks, you know, your average optic is about six millimeters in diameter. And your average capsular bag is, you know, around 10 millimeters in diameter. So that space that goes beyond the optic can just opacify, basically, and it can go anterior, it can go posterior, but it can fill up that space and not go where the optic is, you know, just look like this white ring that you can sometimes see, you know, without the lens having dropped into the back of the eye, just when it's dilated <laughs> enough beyond six millimeters, you can often see the Sommerings ring. And as Andrew says, you don't have to worry about it. Um, though it does, it is super annoying when you're trying to externalize like a dropped lens and like take it out of the bag because it makes the whole thing so much bigger. You know, it's like really hard to to extract mm. actually. So surgically, it's actually can be like a little more challenging if anyone out there is uh, doing IOL exchanges. But that's a topic for another day. So what's the difference then between something like a Sommering's ring and anterior capsular phimosis? Yeah. So, you know, the Sommering's ring is basically between the anterior and posterior capsule where the optic isn't. So like peripheral to the optic. Mm-hmm. Anterior capsular phimosis is when the anterior capsular opening, i.e. where you did your capsular rexus, contracts. And when it's clinically significant phimosis, that's that means it's contracted enough to somehow interfere with the patient's vision. So why would that happen? Well, Fibrosis of the anterior capsule can just happen because of this migration, proliferation, differentiation of lens epithelial cells, as we talked about before. But why the whole opening can kind of contract is you have to think about what normally stops it from contracting, and that would be the zonules. So the zonules are what's normally keeping tension on the anterior capsular opening to, you know, stop just the whole bag from collapsing. You can imagine if you had no zonules and somehow the the bag was just floating, all these cells would, you know, it's essentially like scar tissue would just cause the whole thing to crinkle up and, you know, wrinkle into like a little ball of scar. But it doesn't in part because the zonules are keeping that tension away. So phimosis can happen in basically any condition where you have some kind of zonular weakness. So like classic examples are pseudoexfoliation, um, which well known to cause that, trauma and Marfan syndrome. You know, any other condition you can think of that causes zonular weakness in theory can predispose you to phimosis, but those are some of them. One thing that's known to help prevent this, so if you have a patient where you are worried about the zonules, then one way intraoperatively to try to prevent phimosis is to make a larger rexus opening. 
you know, in theory, that should reduce the chance that they'll that the anterior capsule will contract enough to cause phimosis. As a casual side note, I also really like making big rexies in patients who have weak zonules because that means that you can flip, do do the flip chop technique, where basically you flip the whole nucleus into the anterior chamber. Um, well, not the whole nucleus. You flip, you at least tilt it into the anterior chamber. That way you can chop and do all the crazy things you want to do to it and take the zonules out of the equation, at least in some part. So I think for both reasons, if you have weak zonules, that's something to consider at least. What would the patient notice, Andrew, if they're starting to develop a posterior capsular pacification? They'll start complaining to you that their vision has become a little less good than it was right after the cataract surgery. Yeah. It can happen months after, a year after. Yeah. Often, too, sometimes they talk about blurry vision, but they'll complain about glare. Right, right. Yeah, so just like a posterior subcapsular cataract can give you glare, you know, PCOs can give you glare as well. It's sort of like a recurrent posterior subcapsular cataract in a way. And that's why colloquially some patients refer to it as their second cataract. Yeah, it's always, is my cataract coming back? And it's like, no. (laughs) <laughs> sort of. I mean, it's your lens trying to grow back. You know, I just explain to patients like it's scar tissue from the old lens trying to regrow, but I can't. So then, yeah. you know, sometimes this happens in a certain percentage of people. And I like telling people too, if we really are getting into the weeds, it's because a membrane is getting hazy back there. And it's a lot safer for me to deal with that membrane after than it is for me to deal with it at the time of surgery. Right. Right. And a lot of times, you know, it doesn't become significant until after surgery anyways. So yeah, sometimes these are um, difficult to see on exam or they're very subtle on exam. Obviously, having your light beam on tilt, it makes it easier if your light beam that your, your slit light beam is not directly looking at the, the lens. If it's on tilt with a relatively broad beam, it can be somewhat easier to see just like in a posterior subcapsular cataract. But another way to see it is with retroillumination. Again, it's very similar to a posterior subcapsular cataract. So sometimes if you even just take a direct ophthalmoscope, like that old thing that, you know, you probably don't use except in your neuro-ophthalmology rotation, and look at a patient directly with it and look at their red reflex through a direct ophthalmoscope, sometimes it's actually like easier to see that kind of grittiness under posterior capsule with that, or even just at the slow lamp. So if you're have, like, if a patient comes in with this vague sense of glare, and, you know, it's hard for you to tell, then sometimes you can do that to, like, you know, see kind of more subtle PCO. Okay. So this seems like something that is, um, you know, causes patients visual morbidity and is annoying for patients. Are there any ways that we can maybe in the operating room or otherwise try to prevent the formation of PCO, Andrew? I think there's two ways that you can mitigate it. One is when you're actually before you even get to the operating room. In the selection of your IOL, it turns out IOLs that have square edges where the optic at the very edge of the optic that it's just sort of takes a 90 degree angle as a square edge. As opposed to a round edge. Mm -hmm. Square edges are your friend as far as mitigating and preventing or avoiding PCO as much as possible. I wish I could tell you. I, I mean, I think we... Most of our standard lenses that we reach for, the ones that you're all training on, most likely are square-edged already. Yeah, we won't mention specific companies, but... We shall not. (laughs) If you're using the ones that have a lot of market share in the United States... In academic settings. In academic settings, then they probably have square edges. Right. 
That's like the bigger, more definitive ones. If you're going to remember something, remember Square Edge. There is a modest effect on the material that the lens is made out of, according to BCSC. Or rather, and the material has modest effect, right? That's what I mean. Yeah, the material has modest effect on the rate of PCO formation. And the order from most PCO to least PCO is... Genic. <laughs> PCO-genic. PCO, yeah. PCO-genicity is uh, a PMMA lens is first, then silicone lens, then acrylic lens. So I remember that with the mnemonic PSA, like here's a public service announcement of how, uh, how to prevent PCO from forming or something. You know, that's kind of how I remember that. Yeah. To clarify... PMMA is the one that's most likely to cause PCO. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. P is first. Yeah. P is right. more greater chance. Yeah. To cause and that's PCO. easy to remember again because, again, acrylic lenses are the majority of what's available on the market, probably yeah. what you're using in residency. It's probably what you're using. Yeah. I know there's some places that like love their silicone lenses. That's great. Except if they need a retina surgery, please don't put silicone and lenses in their eye. But yeah, I was going to say, right. Like, and you yeah. can't ever really predict when someone's going to have a retinal detachment. Right. So, right. But if you love your silicone lenses, we will not like debate that or anything. It's not for us. <laughs> On air. Anyway. <laughs> On air. Yeah. You know, another situation where people are much more likely to get PCOs, it's if they're children. You know, I've seen some texts that suggest they even have like a hundred percent chance that develop a PCO in, in children. I don't know if it's, exactly that high but that's why if you're going to undertake a pediatric cataract surgery providers will tell you the routine would then to be do a posterior capsulorexis intraoperatively with you know any routine pediatric cataract surgery and the, the reason is twofold one you should just expect them to develop the posterior capsular pacification and two if they're a child it may be very difficult to reliably do the kind of mainline treatment, which spoilers is a laser, a YAG laser. Yeah. Good luck getting a three-year-old to sit still for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And then we won't talk about how to do a posterior capsulorexis mainly because I don't like, I don't think I, do you do them, Andrew? Have you done one yet? Never. I've watched people do it and it looks like, you know, the little maneuver when you rescue Uh a rexus that's going out. It's basically people just little the entire thing the entire way through. Right, yeah, because the curvature is all different. Right. Are yeah. we talking, talking about it? You got notes for it. Uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I, we can just, basically I just wanted to say that. It's um, hard. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's not like, don't just go in thinking like, oh, yeah, this is trivial. I'll just like, you know, like do this. Like you have to really know what you're doing to prevent vitreous prolapse and um, the, the forces are all different. Some people will do it after the IOL is already in, which will help mitigate any vitreous prolapse, but then it's you have to deal with this lens in your way. Yeah, that sounds very mechanically challenging. I also do know there are some surgeons who routinely do this with adult cataracts too, which I think is very interesting, but uh, we won't go into that. Yeah, that, that seems a little <laughs> wild, but that's not the topic of this episode either. So what's the more commonly done thing that you can do intra-op, aside from just selection of lenses beforehand to sort yes. of mitigate PCO? Yeah, you know, some people will do, because the idea is to remove the lens epithelial cells that cause the problem. Some people will do capsular polishing, both, you know, the anterior and posterior capsule. They would try to take care of with, uh, you know, but by, it literally looks like a polishing technique when you do it right. Yeah, and that's very contingent on your phaco settings being really, really on target. 
Okay, let's talk about how you get rid of a posterior capsular pacification is with the capsulotomy. Andrew, can you remind us, we had an episode, it should be our previous episode, that covered the basics of lasers, but can you remind us what a yeah capsulotomy is? Sure. It's the capsulotomy part describes what we're trying to do, cutting out the, well, lasering out the posterior capsule. The YAG part just talks about which laser is typically used to do this, and the neodymium YAG is a photodisruptive laser. Now, this is not frequency doubled YAG. So if I were to pop quiz you, Ben, as far as the wavelength for the typical YAG cap, what is the wavelength that is typically used? 1064. Yeah, 1064. (laughs) What's our mnemonic for that again? Yeah, and it's YAGs are fun, like playing an N64, if that, like, you know, Nintendo 64. That that mnemonic really only works if you call it neodymium YAG for N64. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, this is the one, this, the, the Death Star of lasers, as I think Ben would call it, where four lasers meet at a point, where at that point it causes this photodisruptive effect, which again is a concussive blast that rips through and explodes whatever is at that focal point where all the four lasers right. meet. It's, not, it's just not a continuous curvilinear laser. You have to do it one blast there, one blast there, one blast there until all the blast lines connect. Yeah. Which also means there are numerous techniques for doing it. Yeah, which we will discuss briefly in a bit. Maybe we should put this disclaimer in the beginning of the episode, but remember, this is not like a tutorial on how to do a YAG. You should have proper and full residency training before you do these. Do this. This does not count as residency training on how to do any kind of procedure. So first let's talk about, you know, we already talked about the benefit of YAGs. Let's just talk about the risks to a YAG capsulotomy just because it's important for tests and for real life. So, you know, I think one one risk is that you have to do more YAG capsulotomy. I didn't think it's pretty rare to not get it all in one go, but it happens. Now, Andrew, is there any inherent problem with doing the YAG essentially in the vitreous cavity? Anything in the vitreous is like playing a game of tug of war with the retina. If you move something at one point in the vitreous, there's retina on the other side of that strand of vitreous that's getting pulled or pushed. And that holds true for YAG capsulotomy also. When I talk to residents about retina surgery, one thing I try to hammer home early is whenever you touch a vitreous, you're basically touching retina because the retina and the vitreous are completely adherent, especially at the vitreous base, which to remind people, the basic anatomy is two millimeters anterior to the orus rod and four millimeters posterior to it. So that's like a decent amount of retina that is, no matter how like carefully you try to tug or pull or, or whatever, there's no way to separate the vitreous from the retina. That's how we think about it. So the rate of it actually causing tear is very low, mainly because the energy that you're depositing, you know, hopefully is low as long as, as we'll talk about your energy settings are right and your positioning is correct. But there's still, you know, somewhere between a zero to 3.6% chance of causing a retinal tear, depending on what study you look at. Um, and that tear will progress to attachment within usually about six months if it's going to happen. If someone is listening to this to psych themselves up for one of their early YAGs, do you want to give tips on that you would give to like your residents if you were about to do a YAG with a resident? Usually, actually, the pointers I give to first timers are all about positioning both yourself yeah. and the patient and less about the laser itself. It's just 
the laser is just as long as you know where to shoot, it's pew, pew, pew after that. But right. uh, yeah, let's talk about um, setup. I think I agree. It's like hugely important. Yeah, I think so. It's even just like hard to get used to holding the lens on and balancing it on the surface of the patient's eye and not letting all of that coupling agent, the goo, get everywhere and messing up your ability to even hold on to the lens. Right, right. And even yeah. just getting it onto the patient's eye, they're probably squint like uh, grimacing and squeezing, keeping yeah. squeezing their eyelids shut. And that's it's it's a little painful to watch uh, somebody who's not practiced at it try to negotiate all of that physically. Yeah. And by the time they finally get on it, they're you know really uncomfortable. Their chair isn't correct. I I tell patient or tell trainees take off your white coat if you're wearing one just make yourself very comfortable make sure the patient's comfortable make sure you're comfortable without even holding anything or touching anything right and then the next challenge is getting the lens that you're going to use onto the patient's eye right how do you do it um i like to put the gel the coupling agent on the lens itself i don't like to put too much and I like to kind of hold it at an angle so that even when you are approaching the patient's eye with the lens, you wait until the very last second to tilt it uh, parallel to their eye. That way, you're always sort of holding it up so that the gel is not running down the side of the lens until the very last second when you plop it onto the surface of the eye. I like to have my patients look up. It gets the eyelashes out of the way. It also allows me to kind of keep that lens tilted so the gel isn't pouring off the edge, off the side. I think you might have taught me how to do a YAG, so I do it like oh. a very similar way. <laughs> huh. so I have no, I have <laughs> nothing further to add there. Yeah, Shucks. I mean, but you know, in general, advice for lasers, I like 100% agree. Like every minute you spend making sure that both you and the patient are set up to be comfortable is like five minutes you take off the procedure, you know, in terms of like having to pause and adjust and like work their neck and they're sweating because they're uncomfortable, etc. Yeah. You know what I found? Okay, maybe like, this is like a little TMI, but I've had an ophthalmic laser once that was at a slit lamp. Doesn't matter why, but I have. And <laughs> I remember when I had that laser, I had someone that had their user, like there was like the, I think the physician's assistant was a while ago, but the physician's assistant would, would use her hand to help brace my head against the headband, like the head, headband rest. And that was actually like really comforting for me. It made things a lot more comfortable. I was actually like relatively young when I had this. So, mm. you know, I could see you know, being like a pediatric patient, maybe someone had to consider doing this like under anesthesia or something for me. Like, you know, I was like almost in that range, but you know, just having that hand there was like comforting. That's you know, like it, nice to know. Cause I always feel like people must feel like I'm a zoo handler or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's possible for you to uh, physician to put their own hand around the back. Cause you have to have one hand of the joystick, but you right. know, if like, if like you're like, you know, if you have a patient who's like really nervous about a laser, like any kind of laser or like, you know, like when I've staffed the lasers with residents, I'll like, you know, be their assistant and help put the hand in the back of the back of the head. And, you know, maybe it just depends on the patient where they find it helpful or not. But, you know, I don't think it hurts and it can help take pressure out their neck, make the patient more comfortable. And one thing I actually remember being uncomfortable about that laser was the physician would actually apply a lot of pressure with the lens onto the onto my eye itself and that was actually pretty uncomfortable I don't know if um, you know I've only had one of these I don't know if that was a lot of pressure for a laser or if you know the 
the physician just wasn't really aware or cognizant of how much pressure they were applying with the lens. But that was the only thing that made me almost want to like kind of quit having that, um, at, you know, at that point. So, you know, that's something to be conscientious of. You definitely want to apply as much pressure as you need to mean stability and safety of the procedure on the eye. But just remember too that you're pushing on someone's eyeball directly. So if you, you know, don't put as much force as you can, put just as much force as you need. And, you know, that, that leads into like a kind of a last thing is in terms of like touch uh, in general, you know, I think th- this is like total soapbox, like this is not a BCSC, but I think, um, you know, letting someone touch your face is a very like private and personal thing. You know, like there's very few people that probably ever touch your face, you know, probably like loved ones. So when a patient lets you touch their face, like I think it's become so trivial to us as the provider that we don't even think about it. But, you know, to patients, it's like a, a meaningful, it's like a big thing. Like, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, listener, the last time you went to the doctor's office, if you, you may have like noticed when even they just take your blood pressure, there's like a different feeling with it being on the other side. And I think when people are touching your face, there's a very different feeling with it too. So being cognizant of how you touch the patient, even when you're using your hand to pull the, the laser lens onto their face, really, I think changes can, can subtly, but powerfully change the dynamics of relationship with that patient. So, you know, I've, I think I've noticed when I've been more cognizant of that, that I give a more confident touch, you know, where, where I brace my hands against a patient's face when I'm holding a laser lens retina, glaucoma laser, whatever, um, then, you know, I feel like the patient senses that confidence, which is what they're looking for in their physician. You know, that's what I think people, they want their doctor to know what they're doing. Like that's probably the number one thing people would say. And if you can just signal that with something as private as facial touch and, you know, as something, you know, that's so minor as being really cognizant of your touch, then I think it really helps the patient. I do the same thing with like intravitreal injections, you know. I've noticed when like my touch is more timid, then maybe the patient gets more anxious. So that's just like a general tip that I give the trainees before they do early lasers. I love it. Um, the only thing I would add to that is every time I see my fellow or residents touch patients now without gloves these days, I have a little conniption. So yeah, wear gloves. In wow. this, even before like the COVID era, it's like, you know, you should probably wear, you know, I mean, definitely always wash your hands, but like gloves are probably a good idea. Like even before <laughs> pa- global pandemics. It took a global pandemic to get ophthalmology to wear gloves. Yeah. Oh. Um, positioning of the laser. Positioning of the laser. Right. I think before positioning is settings for your laser, which really is just sure. energy and just use the minimal amount you need. That'll be obvious when it's a subtle PCO, but if it's really a thick PCO, you might need a lot of energy. Yeah. And I've even had cases where, you know, the explosion of the photo disruption means that the area of the capsule you disrupt is pretty large, unless, again, it is a really thick rind of a capsule. I've had ones where I fire the explosion it's like a tiny 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 little pinprick of a hole and you're like i have to do this 300 times to try to do anything of value right right so you do have to balance titrate the energy to the severity of the opacification that's not quite what you were leading me into talking right the that was no i think that was great so you know that's i think that's a great point about titrating energy and then talk about titrating position Mm, so 
you know, you actually don't want your energy directly deposited in the actual posterior capsule because oftentimes the posterior capsule is adherent to the lens. So if you, you know, are laser encapsulating, you're directly lasering lens, your goal should be to deposit that energy, cause that micro explosion just posterior to the capsule. So the shockwave of it rips through and tears capsule where you want it to. So, but you also don't want to go too posterior because one, it's going to be too far for your explosion to have effect. And two, the more posterior you go, in theory, the higher risk of causing retinal terrorists. So you want to, that, you don't want to be too posterior, you don't want to be too anterior. Um, I would, in general, err on just a little, just a little bit too posterior and then bring it in if you notice that your laser is too far away. You know, you can't, once you ding the lens, when you cause a nick on the lens by being too close to the lens and you can't reverse that. But, you know, you may see a lot of people will appear like their targeting beam will be directly on the posterior capsule. Why can they do that? Why do they break my rules? Well, there's a setting on the laser called posterior offset. So that will deposit, that just is like a lens that deposits energy just posterior to where you're focusing. So, you know, I think a lot of people use plus one, plus 2.5 diopters for that. I, this is not a direct tutorial about how to do a laser, defer to your attending who's staffing you, but that's the point of that posterior offset. So you can focus exactly in the posterior capsule and shoot, and then the energy will be deposited just posterior to where you're shooting. I would be cautious, though, because a lot of these laser models make it a spectrum from an, from posterior to anterior offset. Make sure you don't turn the dial the wrong direction. Uh, yeah, oh, that would be bad. Yeah, that would yeah, be, that'd be negative. Otherwise, so, you're definitely digging the lens. <laughs> so what happens when you ding the lens? Thankfully, nothing. Really. But it certainly leaves an unsightly mark that the examiner will always see, and you will be mildly judged by any other ophthalmologist who ever sees the patient. Fortunately for all of us, though, it never really seems to be something people see. So thankfully, the dinging on the lens, unless you, like, (laughs) ding in a cluster of, I don't know, 20 shots that just become one big confluent ding should be okay. And by the way, ding is not a technical term. I don't know of a technical term for this. Do you? Yeah, we just kind of pretend they don't exist. So <laughs> like, I don't think I've ever like documented the dings on a, on a lens, but yeah, right. it's, it's difficult to make it very, very different. I mean, it's theoretically possible. Probably if they're like the closer you are to the visual axis, like the direct center of the lens, the more likely it is to cause a visually significant problem that you'd have to do like a lens exchange for but um yeah. yeah it's very yeah like you know like it's just i've seen patients who have had it looks like a constellation you know on their intraocular lens and they don't notice definitely don't try to do it we're not advocating that you just like go ham and make them but uh you know also don't like beat yourself up too much if you like being a little bit here and there this i think is the reason though that there is slightly different techniques of doing it and, you know, Ben, you and I were taught by our attending to do the cross pattern, right? Yeah, I've actually saw, you know, we both turned into the same residency program, saw different things actually advocate for both the circular and the cross pattern. Mm-hmm. So do you want to, which do you prefer? If do I'm it? doing it, I prefer the cross pattern in most situations because I feel like to get the capsule or opacification out of the visual axis, you can get away with less energy with a cross where you sort of make a line down the vertical midline and then you make a horizon, try to horizontally connect those at the horizontal midline. And that's actually, I think, less shots than the other technique, which we'll talk about it in a bit. 
but it does involve shooting right in the center at the visual axis. And if you ding it there, they might see it, actually. Right. So my preference when I'm teaching this to newbies, I want them to do the circular approach, which you can do and completely avoid the middle at the where the visual axis is. I do tell them, you know, you can imagine, okay, I'm just going to shoot little pings of laser in a circle all the way around, but I actually don't want them to do maybe the bottom two or three clock hours of the circle because I want the opacification, the capsule to actually kind of fold back on a hinge at the bottom there. Mm -hmm. I was once warned by an attending that if you completely just let capsule, you yag off the capsule such that an entire flap of it is free floating in the vitreous, then you've just given them a giant ass floater. I've not had people complain about that when I wonder if I've done it on whatever, but still, I try to avoid it. Yeah, ideally you can avoid it, but I also haven't seen anyone complain of it, but you know, it is ideal to avoid. I think the reason, and you, I'm curious to know what you think of this, Ben, as a retina guy. <laughs> um, I think the reason is the vitreous just acts like a paperweight, right? It's not just thinly viscous water that this stuff is floating in. It actually settles down. Whatever little clumps of material you have, I think those capsular floaters just end up settling down to the bottom of your eye. Yeah, yeah, I think, like, I've haven't really been able to distinguish capsular fragments on an exam, you know, more than like a week out um, compared to, you know, before. So, hmm. yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with that. That, that it, like, yeah, I don't think it really usually causes visually significant floaters. An exception might be if there was cortex trapped under the capsule that you lasered and the cortex is released. Perhaps that could, you know, if there's something else that's floated, that's that you're releasing into the anterior vitreous. Yeah. One exception to my rule where I may do the circular pattern myself, even though I know how to do it pretty well, is if it's such a huge really thick rind, really, really thick posterior capsular opacification that the cross pattern depends on your relatively large blast areas to sort of swing those flaps back. But if it's a really thick rind, then it's you put little holes in it and it's not going to do anything. It's just going to sit there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Another like small tip, and this is kind of more to minimize the amount of energy you need, is when you're doing your laser, you know, you don't have to ex exactly follow the algorithmic approach of like going exactly across or a circle. Really what you're trying to laser is where there's lines of tension. That's where I feel like your laser is going to be the most effective because, mm -hmm. you know, those lines of tension, you, you can usually tell is where like, you know, the capsule is kind of wrinkled up and you can tell there's a kind of some tension. So if you laser there, then the thing is going to rip up and like it, the tear is going to extend much more than if you just laser in some kind of random spot without much tension in it. So that can really help minimize the amount of energy you have to deposit. Um, yeah. I think uh, we have yeah. now squeezed ourselves dry of everything we possibly know about this. <laughs> or have we? No, yeah, I agree. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. But, you know, I guess maybe the last thing is just coming back to the idea that you could, like, YAG isn't, specifically made for capsulotomy it's basically made to make micro explosions so if there's situations where you think you might have to take a patient back to the or then but perhaps a yag would do consider the yag you know like you know 
throughout Rising City, I've seen many creative solutions to avoiding it. Patient going back to the OR, like, you know, doing some YAG to open up an Ahmed tube that was clogged up by like a little bit of heme or, or, um, yeah, you it, can do a you lot know, with or, YAG or, and glaucoma. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, just off the top of my head, there's, of course, the LPIs. Sometimes you can do anterior hyalidotomies to get rid of mm-hmm. malignant glaucoma or aqueous misdirection. Mm-hmm. You can even try to, like, revive, revitalize a trabeculectomy after ice, what, what, yeah, ice syndrome. Sometimes that messes up the sclerostomy. Anyway. I should yeah. stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, no, no. Yeah. I mean, so basically like, we're not, we're not advocating that you like, you know, go wild and do them on your own. But if you're comfortable with the egg, you understand the principles, you, um, you know, have sufficient training and oversight and you can think of a creative way to help, you know, help a patient that may otherwise need, you know, operative, uh, not procedure, then, you know, like remember, yeah, exists, you know, just remember, yeah, exists. Hmm. Okay. I think that's all we have for this week. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. We also have our website, www.eyes4ears.com with the number four also. Um, and if you'd like to support the podcast, then a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found us is like super helpful. I think that's yeah. it. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Okay, you ready? And a one, and a two. Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPs and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these podcasts are meant for medical... (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. At least it wasn't in the middle of it. We don't understand why this train does this at night. It, it waits. It like it like it's hacked into our text chain about when we're gonna like when we're gonna. I record. mean, I, I guess it's because I don't know. Just like <sighs> sorry. Uh, yeah. No, no. Was, yeah. I mean, as train lord, I expect you to have better controls over your minions. So, uh, and a one and a two.